Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. This recording and the festival itself take place on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to ancestors and elders, past and present. We hope you enjoy this conversation from our 2021 podcast series. Good morning. We are absolutely thrilled to be here with all of you this morning at the Sydney Writers' Festival. I think that everyone can feel it's such a special atmosphere this year after 2020. I'm Bridie Jabour, and this morning we're joined by Emily Maguire and Keridan Dovey. Sorry, I knew I was going to stumble (laughs) over that. Authors, I've said it a million times in my head, authors of Life After Truth and Love Objects. Life After Truth takes place at the 15-year reunion of Harvard graduates with all the humble brags, insecurity and wistfulness that that entails, but has the added frisson of the son of the dreadful US president being there. I think we can uh, all imagine what that kind of character would look like. (laughs) Love Objects also has strong class themes um, and it's about as a niece discovers her aunt's hoarding problem while trying to put herself through university in Sydney. So, Emily, I'll start with you since you're right next to me. What come, But I want both of you to answer this. What comes first for you, the plot or the themes? Oh, um, it's actually a little bit different with each book, but with Love Objects, um, it was actually the character... So it was the character of Nick um, who I who sort of came to me oh, probably close to a decade ago now. Um, this idea of someone I've known quite a few people in my life who who have hoarding type behaviour and I've so in that in that way it was sort of thematic, I suppose. I've had this long fascination with not not just with that specific behaviour, but just in general how we as people um, relate to our objects and our stuff because I think most people if you ask them about how they relate to their stuff they're like I'm not materialistic I don't care about my stuff but then everyone really does or at least some of it or has really strong feelings about what they have in their home and around them so I'm just really interested in that and then this sort of one extreme of it which is hoarding behavior and I did just start to really get this idea of this woman who is you know a perfectly happy uh, quote-unquote normal person as much as anyone else can tell just going about living her life but when she gets home and opens her front door it doesn't open fully and she has to turn to her side and kind of arms in the air to move through this space and I just became really interested in the idea of this woman what what is her life like behind closed doors in her home what does that bring to her and and why is that a secret from the outside and so that idea of this character just really sat with me for, for a long time. And I, I didn't have the answers to that questions or even close enough to the answer to that question to, to start writing it until, you know, until I did, which is when I started to write this novel. And it all started from that character and, and thinking about her and her experience. What, what is it that means that she feels the need to keep every single object that passes through her hands? And, and what is that experience like for her? How many hoarders did you have to speak to? Because you get right in her mind and I really felt like, even though it's obviously a novel and fiction, I really felt like I came away from that book with such an understanding of what goes through hoarders' minds and and why they are like this and why they would hang on to all the objects. And I think that anybody can see themselves in Nick a little bit because it's also about things you're sentimental about, you know, for the average person. We all have things that people would look at and think is useless crap you know, like a dress from 15 years ago that doesn't fit, but you wore it to a particular funeral. 
And you really, you were so compassionate and you really got into her mind. I felt like it was such an understanding to how many hoarders did you have to talk to for that? And I assume social workers and yeah, researchers. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad it comes across that way because that was really important to me. I was lucky enough to get this incredible uh, fellowship. Uh, it's the Judy Harris Writer-in-Residence Fellowship at the Charles Perkins Centre at Sydney University. And it's this unique, as far as I know, opportunity where they actually get a creative writer into this medical research institution and let you spend a year there, basically just making trouble asking awkward questions of all the researchers around a particular project. So, and they were really good sports and really, um, really happily took on and embraced my, yeah, but what if, but what if, but why, for a whole year, like having a little toddler around. Um, but it did help me, first of all, understand at least where we're at in terms of the science and the research behind hoarding behaviour. So that was, that's not in the book in a specific way, because the book is written very much from the character's point of view. She doesn't see herself as a hoarder. That word has nothing to do with her or how she thinks about herself. But for me to have that kind of understanding of the research was really important. And from there, I was able to connect with some with a couple of the major hospitals in Sydney, social workers, who are the people who when someone like Nick, who, you know, it's not giving anything away to have, say, she is injured very early on in the book by her stuff and ends up in hospital. And that is the, the real life situation is if someone is brought in by an ambulance and the paramedics say this home isn't safe social workers will come in. So I got to um, speak to a lot of those wonderful people who do that work and some psychologists who deal with this. And then from there, um, some support groups for the very, very small minority of people with this behaviour who actually are in treatment and identify as hoarders, which is a tiny, tiny percentage of people with the behaviour. But they were incredibly generous and insightful people. And I got so much from just sitting with them and speaking to them about their experience with their things. So not speaking to them about what's it like being a hoarder, but just really like, tell me about this item in your room. And it's exactly as you said, that I think pretty much anyone can relate to it. We, we all have things that when you pick it up, it looks useless to other people. It doesn't have monetary value, but to, to throw it away or to get rid of it would feel like losing a memory. Or, or losing uh, or an insult to the person who gave it to you or who, belong, who it belonged to. And just connecting with that feeling in myself as well about items I own, and it, and it really is with someone like my character, Nick, it's just that that is applied to pretty much everything. But it's the same feeling and it's the same sense of if you were to come into my house and decide that you didn't think I should have certain items in there and just chuck them out, that's such a violation and so devastating. Was there anything that surprised you in your research of hoarders? Um, I was surprised all the time because, well, I mean, this is the thing, people are people. And even though some of the behaviour patterns I, I saw repeated again and again, every single person was completely different from each other. There's no, you know, there are stereotypes out in popular culture and the media about people who hoard, but they, they don't hold up at all outside of certain little behaviours, the the expanse and the range and the diversity of people who who have this extra attachment and connection to stuff it's, it's there's just absolutely no limits to it and that was that was a really wonderful and thrilling thing to just talk to such an incredible range of people um, who who can have this relationship to their things that that is on a different level than than many of us have um, but that's not actually what defines who they are as a person because there's all that other stuff going on that we all have going on. And, and what about in Life After Truth? What came first for you? The themes 
there's quite a few themes through the book and obviously no one book is about one thing or the plot. I think what Emily said is true that um, as a writer, every book is so different in how it's written. And I think that's actually what makes writing so addictive, having done it for quite a while now, is that you never actually um, feel like you're getting to a point where, you know, you have complete mastery over the process and you're always surprised. So for this book, um, I had never intended to write a novel about my own 15-year reunion um, at college in America. Um, and I had a sense of, you know, the, the future books that I wanted to write, and this was not one of them. Um, but I went along to my um, reunion. It was a very um, emotionally rich time. It was the first time I'd been back to America in 10 years after having spent a lot of time there in my 20s. It was the first trip I'd done um, after becoming a mother and the first sort of solo trip I'd done away from the family. Um, I was really jet-lagged when I got there and I just remember wandering around the campus and feeling um, like there was a, um, a sort of sense of connecting with this past self. Um, there's a tradition on the Harvard campus that you can actually stay in the same dormitories when you go back for your reunions. So suddenly I was there sleeping in these dormitories in the same little single beds and the room smells exactly the same as when I was 18. <laughs> and the sounds are the same and the light coming through the window is the same. And I just remember lying there not sleeping the first night partially from jet lag and partially because I was just so overstimulated and thinking, oh, shit, I think I have to write a novel about this <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to have to just move those other projects aside. And that had never really happened to me in such a visceral way. And then over the course of this weekend, um, seeing these people that I had known really well as a young person, um, hung out with in my pyjamas, you know, seen at their best, seen at their very worst, because in that sort of, you know, on-campus living situation, you're really in each other's lives. And then many of them I hadn't seen again for 15 years and suddenly bumping into them and everybody taking stock of their lives. We were all turning 40, so I think there was something around the energy too of midlife and the um, natural sort of reassessment that we make then around our choices and then the, I think, particular to that campus, the sense that we had been told at a young age that we were special by getting into Very Harvard. Very special. Right? Very like, special. Which at the time, I don't think you actually process. And so the further, the more time that passes, the more that feels like a dream that happened to somebody else. Um, and the gap between your youthful promise and the necessary compromises of middle age is steep. And it was steep for all of us there. And so I thought, what, a, what an interesting thing to use as a sort of wedge into understanding midlife, um, to have this group of people who are forced back together for this very intense experience, um, but who are through their internal monologues in the book us prepared to reveal uh, that, you know, their, their experience of that gap between who they were and who they hoped they might become. So when did you sit down and start writing? You know, did, did you do some pages that weekend or did you come back to Australia or how did it come? Um, 
I had terrible jet lag coming back and then I got terrible insomnia for several months. Um, and I think looking back again, it was, you know, that feeling when you have an idea and it's just not going to let you alone. But I was also troubled by the idea because I tend to write in my fiction, um, I, I tend to feel more comfortable in allegorical space. So I tend to write fables, um, political allegories, things that float above the realist world. I had never really written something that was going to process modern life and norms within my own social circle before. So I was very worried about that. And so I, this insomnia was a very strange time. And a friend really helped me because she said... Um, that Barbara Kingsolver had written the Poisonwood Bible. Apparently, she had terrible pregnancy insomnia and she'd written it in nine months. Now, I'm not putting myself in Barbara's amazing uh, <laughs> company, but I just remember feeling like, okay, maybe, you know, I just have to go with this. And there was something about that disconnect between reality, you know, that you're feeling when you're going through a period of insomnia. So, I wrote a lot at night when I couldn't I was, well, I was going to ask, what does your writing day look like? Well, normally not like your, that. <laughs> what did your writing like night Yeah, look I mean, like? I just, I had never done that before. Um, but it was better than getting up and doing colouring in books. So, um, <laughs> I just kind of rolled with it. And, um, and I have to say, it was actually one of the most enjoyable books that I've ever written. And so, even though it's in a slightly different voice or register to things I've written before um I really um I found it very pleasurable to be just give myself permission to say it's okay to just write about daily lives um and people's you know nothing dramatic other than the horrible son of the president getting killed off right at the beginning of the book but other than that nothing really dramatic happens in any of their lives and they're really just thinking about things like parenthood and work and money and meaning and um, it was nice to just sit in that space. Well, it's a very vivid world. So it seems to me the kind of novel that even when you were writing it, even when you're not actually writing, going about like your daily life, it would feel like you had one foot in this world still. It would be a very difficult world, I assume, to step out of in the morning or at the end of each writing session <laughs> and move away yeah. from. Yeah, it was... Um and no one ever believes a writer, I'm sure you get this too, Emily, all the time, but when we say that the characters are invented, it's actually the truth. Um, <laughs> they are built from the ground up. And again, for me, that's the true joy of writing fiction is that you get to, um, I mean, some people would say play God. Um, and certainly there is a rush of, of creating a character that did not exist before except in your mind. Um, but yeah, building that world, I was taking all the emotional experiences that I had had over that weekend, but then um, inventing these characters and sort of putting them into those situations. And yeah, it was, it was fun. So how long did the first draft take? Um, I think about nine months. Oh, like a baby. The, like a baby. <laughs> Actually, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, like Barbara, <laughs> Kingsolver, there you go. Um, yeah, which was the fastest I had ever done a draft before. And what about you, Emily? What's your writing 
uh, actual day-to-day or night-to-night process. Yeah, with, it's, with it's really interesting um, to hear you say that. So, so my first novel, which was a long time ago now, I wrote that with a really bad bout of insomnia. Oh. And that's what actually oh. got me started writing. I mean, I'd wanted to write for a long time. I was working in a really, really terrible call centre job, which was, you know, deeply depressing. And I would just stay awake all night and I just thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. I'll start doing this thing. And that, that first novel was written with this insomnia. And then that sort of gave me a belief about myself. Like, I write at night. But once the insomnia was gone, that's a really terrible idea because I'm just like, anyway, I'm just like tired and it's terrible. <laughs> um, so, so I had to kind of, I think this can be a thing, especially as a younger writer, you can get real myths about yourself or about the process. So I had to let go of that. And, and over the years and sort of another seven books or something, what I've figured out is that actually I can write anytime. It, it's not a night or a day thing. And, and my life has necessitated that you know, I, I, I have learned to do that because I don't have um, a straightforward schedule. I can't say these are my writing hours or these are my office hours. I have other work. I have family commitments. I have other things. If I have half an hour in my day, then that's when I need to write. And if I have four hours on a different day, then that's when I'm going to write. And I've really trained myself to have certain... Um, uh, things that help me do that to get into that space really easily. So they're real practical things like I wear noise-cancelling headphones. I have certain music that I listen to for different books or different things that just immediately put me in that space um, because, yeah, I, I write when I can write and that's how it works. And, that, you know, there have been times when I've had, like I've been on a residency or something when I just have endless wonderful hours and that's great. But really looking back over all the years and all the books, that's not when the books get written. That might be when they get revised or polished when I have those huge stretches of time to really sink into it. But the drafts get written in little bits throughout the day and throughout the time. Um, and I, it, you know, it just can't, it just wouldn't work for me to sort of be in any way precious or fussy about when my writing time or my space is. The, the good thing throughout all of this is that it's what I want to be doing. Like, I love writing. I'm not one of those... I, I hear writers say, I hate writing. I love having written. I, I actually love writing. Like, it's my favourite thing to do. Sometimes I forget that and I have to trick myself into starting a session. But once I'm doing it, I, I'm not easily distracted. I don't want to be doing anything else. And so finding those times to write, it's, it's not hard. It's like finding a time to slip away from responsibility and do a really fun thing that's completely self-indulgent because I am God and I am deciding what happens. <laughs> and it's, it's a, you know, complete pleasure and joy. And that's not to say there aren't hard writing days when what's coming out seems awful, but in the scale of a whole life, it's what I want to be doing with as much time as I possibly can. So that's what I do when I can. I think that's so powerful to say and it's such a myth around writing that you know you have you have to wait for the inspiration and that all the conditions need to be perfect and um even you know the idea that you must write x number of words a day um and I know you mentor a lot of writers and teach writing but it's also something that I often say particularly to women who you know by for better or worse whose experience is often fragmented at a daily level like just adapt to whatever's happening in your life mm. um, instead of waiting to have that, you know, precious time mm. put aside or yeah. you will never do it. Never and, do it. and the trick of making it a guilty pleasure is a real thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it was something I learned from a professor who used to, he taught economics, but he also taught creative writing and he used to keep one computer 
um, for his economics work. And then if he had 15 minutes even between seeing students, he'd go to his little laptop he'd at the back. He'd cheat on the other work. He'd cheat on the other work. Yeah. And it's true that there's something, if you can make it feel a, a little bit dirty, yeah. then... <laughs> You will do the work. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and I think the other thing that goes with that is being uh, talking of mentoring students and, and newer writers is to, to become relaxed with first drafts being a mess. Because that's the other thing. If you are writing in little fragments, you're going to get a little bit lost and a little bit forgetful about what you wrote in the last little fragment. And that that's fine because that's what first drafts are for. But yeah. you need those words there and you need that first draft to be able to then put it together and polish it up. So not thinking that, yeah, like I'm not some genius that can have. 20 minutes in my day and I'm writing perfect prose that fits perfectly with what became before and after. Absolutely. It's much messier than that, but it's getting it down there and then then the world exists and the characters exist and that's, you know, that's the thing you can then play with and make better, which is also fun. Yeah. And you yeah. can just finesse from there. That reminds say you saying, you know, other writers say, oh, it's so hard or, um, you know, I hate writing. When I was finishing my first book, uh, my brother was living with me. My brother is a nurse in an ICU. So a much more meaningful work than me. And I would, you know, an I'd be actually sitting, hard yeah, job. Yeah, an actual, <laughs> exactly. It's an actual hard job. And so I'd be sitting at my computer in my silk dressing gown in the morning being like, <laughs> oh, this is hard. And he, he walked in, particularly one morning from a 12-hour night shift. And I looked up at him and I was like, this ain't fucking hard. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually stuck with me a long time since then. Like what a pleasure and a joy and a privilege to be able to write. And of course, like it's frustrating sometimes, but everyone gets frustrated on, in their jobs. And, you know, at least I'm not on my feet for 12 hours. Yeah. I, I have the great gift of a partner who is a plumber. And although he doesn't rub it Another in or remind job. it to me on purpose, yeah, there will be days when I think I've had a hard day and he'll come out with, well, that was the hardest sewer choke I've done in 20 years. Oh. <laughs> I think, yeah, this is a pretty nice life. <laughs> and uh, through both books, class is a big theme and really at uh, quite opposite ends of the spectrums in both books. I really do recommend reading these books together. It was actually such a rich experience for me to read them one after the other and they do, this has been programmed excellently, they do fit really well <laughs> together. But why it was interesting to read, especially by Australian writers, two books with such strong class themes because Australians are usually not very good at talking about class. And why, why do you think that is, Keridun? Oh, God, don't ask me that one. I'll let Emily answer that. But why do you think I set the book in America with all American characters? <laughs> it was much easier for me to speak about and write about class outside of this culture, which I'm not quite sure I feel yet legitimate um, uh, in processing. Um, but when I was thinking about, you know, Harvard and privilege and... Um, I think one of the anxieties around writing this book was the sense that, you know, do people want to read about a bunch of, you know, kids who are lucky enough to go to this Ivy League university and, you know, will people care about their midlife crises when they have, you know, been some of the lucky ones? But um, what was interesting to me as, a, as an 18-year-old's turning up at Harvard, I'd never been to America, was on a full scholarship, and many people don't know this, but because Harvard is so wealthy from their endowment, which is, you know, centuries of privilege, but um, they give extraordinary amounts of financial aid to foreign students, to um, 
American students who would never be able to go there. I think it's something like 80% of the undergrads are on financial aid, mm. many of them on full financial aid. But no one knows that. So um, actually, the student body is a really interesting mix of, you've got a little bit of the legacy kids, you know, the kind of Jared Kushner's of the world, whose dad donated a building so that he could get in. And it's now, that's been documented in the press. Um, but most of the people, certainly that I knew and hung out with, were other international students who won financial aid or middle-class students, American students who... Um, either their parents had wiped out their life savings in order to send them there because at that point they weren't helping as many middle-class students to come to Harvard or people who were also in full scholarship. So I thought, you know, it's kind of that insider view and um, I trained as a social anthropologist originally while I was um, studying there. And so that sense of what are the um, things about this place and this culture that only, you know, once you're actually lurking within those hallowed halls you know, become apparent. Um, so all of the characters actually in the book, other than the one who's killed off um, and the famous actress character, uh, they're all there because of a mix of those sorts of reasons. Um, and I think that makes it a much more interesting discussion of class because you're taking people out of a particular background and you're putting them in a place where it comes with all of the pressure and the sense for many of the people that I was there with, you know, some of them were the first people in their families to go to university. I mean, the pressure on those kids, particularly the American kids, luckily as a, I'd come straight out of high school here and I had no idea, like just no idea, you know, turned up with the suitcase and, um, but I also didn't have that pressure that all of the Americans had of like, oh my God, I have worked so hard to be here and my whole family is now watching me. Um, and so for them, I think that's, that was a really toxic, often, mix um, of stress and pressure. Um, and to see what, how they have then made sense of life after college, life after Harvard, that was really interesting to me because many of them have had to answer some pretty you know, uncomfortable questions about coming from a place of non-privilege but then being given access to another world and then trying to find a, a, some sort of medium between the two. I think that's what's really interesting in your book as well with the, with the idea of class as well is that, you know, I, I think some people have a really shallow understanding if they haven't thought about it a lot that, that class and money are the same thing. Yeah. And that separation between the kind of class privilege that comes with a certain education or a certain kind of social capital, it doesn't necessarily mean someone's rich. And I think, yeah. you know, um, your character who's a, like a, is it a middle school principal or a, a small school yeah. principal and, and doesn't have the money, like in his middle age, that some of his people who he came through Harvard with. And he's certainly not of a different class in, in that sense, in terms of social capital. Like he, he has a lot of that, but, but he doesn't have money. Yeah. And I think it's that, um, well, actually your novel's also set partially on a university campus um, and the way you described the dormitories and I, that resonated for me because I think what happens in those residential situations is that class is actually quite invisible mm. or certainly it was on campus for me um, because you are all sleeping in these same beds and you eat all your meals together. And But then suddenly you'd get invited home to a classmate's Thanksgiving, you know, and, and this 
sort of chasm would open up yeah. in your understanding of who they really were. But none of them ever came home with me because my parents lived in mm. Australia. And so I still have the sense to the day, even my closest roommates from college, no one's visited me. Um, but COVID's obviously part of that now, but I don't think they really know who I am because they've never seen that other stuff. So mm. I think, whereas I often got these sort of very interesting views into other people's um, realities that are mm. invisible when mm. you're on the campus, which is a lovely thing in that you can kind of just focus on the learning and stuff, but there's all this other, you know, stuff behind them that you're not aware of that suddenly become visible. Yeah, and when you're not aware of it, it, it does give the impression of equality because it's a quality of education once everyone's there. Yeah. But the, the pressures on people who do have to actually pay for stuff yeah. As you were talking about, all well, people are going to be in debt for a generation, like totally. until, you know, yeah. 20 years is that, that those are forces working on your life and your choices after that, they even are. if that yeah. education at that point does all feel the same, we're all equal here. And there was, so one of the jobs I did as an international student, most of the international students did this was dorm crew. So you'd actually go and clean the bathrooms of the dormitories because it was the best paid job on campus. Um, it paid really well and it paid in US dollars, which we were all desperate for. Um, and that was another interesting moment where you'd knock on the door with your bucket and then, you know, often a classmate would let you in. And it was a dorm room, just like the one you had been sleeping in. So it wasn't like, but there was an interesting interaction that happened and everyone was always very nice about it. I never had bad experiences or anything. And there was nothing shameful about the job. Like actually we were really excited to have the job but yeah little moments like that where something would pass it's still an them, interesting you know? dynamic though there mm. is nothing shameful about that job but it's an interesting dynamic to be going and cleaning your doormate's bathroom yeah I loved it maybe as a writer that weird thing of me <laughs> so nosy. loved it loved seeing what they had in their shelves and I'd have a little look in the cupboard yeah. I mean That's I was me getting dinner party eh? yeah. yeah I was getting a lot more from them than they were getting from me also I used to stick them up in the toilet which we weren't meant to do but that was my little revenge <laughs> I think I just revealed too much. <laughs> You're, it's well, very supportive. They're not here, <laughs> like you said. They never come to see you, so <laughs> they're not here to find that out. Um, so, and we're going to come back to Kushner in just a second because I just have one little nosy question to ask. But just staying on class for a moment, Emily, why do you think that Australians are – we're very bad at talking about it and we try to pretend a lot – try to pretend it doesn't exist in Australia when it very obviously does. Yeah, um, we do do that. And I, I, I think probably historians amongst us would, would have some good explanations for, for why we do that and where it comes from. But I just think it's really interesting um, that if you are not upper middle class or even middle class growing up, and then you move into this world. So I am sort of talking about myself here, moving to a world where, where that is most of the people you're meeting. I think when that started to happen to me, that's when I noticed that class was a thing and that all the people around me still didn't notice it. Like when you're the one who suddenly is maybe, um, people don't realise it, but they're little asides or jokes about bogans or about certain products. And this goes back to the object obsession again, certain brands or not, or where you might shop and all that kind of thing. And they're just little comments. No one's meaning to be mean or anything, but you suddenly think, oh, they're talking about me and my family. 
Like, yeah. we're the, we are those people. <laughs> and those are sort of subtle things. And then you get deeper and you realise, oh, it's not that I've failed at life why I don't own a house. Actually, these people I know who own houses at my age inherited money or inherited wealth or had parents to be guarantors for their loan or those kind of things that, you know, we've had prime ministers tell us is the solution to the housing crisis is get the money off your parents. Um, and you think, oh, and, it, and again, it's not anyone's sort of doing anything to, to try and hurt you or make you feel left out, but there is this, you get this underlying assumption and this is what I mean, the, the pressures that are behind certain, like, like everyone has equal choices and if you manage to get to university, you can have an equal education and everything in this country. But, but there are these, pressures and forces that mean, you know, if you go to university and you have to work close to full time to pay for your accommodation or your classes, that is a disadvantage in when it comes to studying. And it's also a social disadvantage when it comes to partying because there's only a certain number of times you have and the friends you're making and all that kind of stuff. So it is this invisible stuff. And I think the people who are sort of on the more privileged end of it can actually genuinely believe that class isn't an issue because you don't see what you don't see. That's how privilege works for all of us in, in every way, that it's, it's not about having your foot on someone else's neck all the time. It's sometimes you just don't see that things that you take for granted because everyone you know, this is just how life works, that there are a lot of people who actually don't have those things. And I think, you know, in my novel, Lena is someone, that, the niece character, who um, is the first in her family to go to university and she is making friendships with people who she doesn't realise to start with until she goes home to their flats and whatever, um, that they're not like her at all, that, you know, she is working nearly full time. She does have different obligations because she has a part fellowship. She is sort of watched more carefully. She doesn't have a buffer if she stuffs up. Um, and so, yes, the education is equal, but God, there's so many other pressures behind that too. And when you're 18, 19, 20, and things do just seem easier for everyone else. And no one's really saying why that is. Yeah. Everyone's saying, if you just try hard, if you just do this, we're all equal here. You can just feel like I'm just a loser and I can't cope. But actually, you're just encountering people who are born on third base and think they've hit a home run. Exactly. <laughs> and speaking of which, Kirshner <laughs> at the reunion, was he there? No, as far as I know, he was not there. Um, there were rumours, but it was like he was like a ghost among the, you know. Um, so, no, I, I never saw him and never interacted with him. But what did happen is, and I used this in the novel, there's a book before your reunion called The Red Book and you ask to write something. And it's a long tradition and goes back 100 years. And you, it's not just that you write like what you, you know, how many kids you had and what, job you're doing people write poems they write I couldn't believe it was real it was so bonkers oh, yeah. I thought it was made up no I it's up, a it's thing real. I mean again as a writer and it's a big thick book like this that comes every five years I read it cover to cover because it's just fascinating how people interpret the remit differently I've never been bold enough to do anything except so I live in Sydney I've had two children you know like never take it beyond the bounds but I mean people write absurdist songs and you know just really strange list to-do lists and stream of consciousness and um and in the months leading up to the reunion there was a movement by some classmates for everybody in the class to write shame on you Jared Kushner at the end of their red book entry and about 10 brave souls did 
out really of a class can. of about 1,600. Wow. Um, yeah, I didn't. Um, so in the book, they would, they'd do their, you know, whatever it was, the performance or the whatever they'd written, and then 10 of them had put in italic shame on you, Jared Krishna, which I just thought, wow, that's cool, that's great. And um, then there was a movement just beforehand to ban him from the reunion as well, but I don't, you know. Um, but the, what I try to process in the novel is that I think there's also a frisson that comes from having this very infamous person in the class, and so people were hoping to see him or bump into him, whether it was to you know, give him the cold shoulder or to be near power. I think it's something very interesting that happens in those situations and that's why I took his power, the dark side of power, and then this actress character who's arrived at college already famous based on Natalie Portman, who was the classmate, who I was briefly friends with and then I stuffed it up. Um, <laughs> and she was, you know, came into that situation trying to be a normal mortal among mortals and it was really interesting to watch her try to navigate that and very hard I think for her to navigate and so the friendship group in the novel orbit around an actress character and they've kind of held together by her but um, their own lives are thrown into relief by these two characters who are you know really struggling under the burdens of their own fame. And the actress the actress character I thought was so well done that I thought you must have spoken did you get to speak to Natalie about what it was like I just thought it was so very real yeah but I guess you did um and the way that everyone reacted to her as well was so very real yeah I mean um the one thing I did use from real interaction with her was the visit to the set where she was filming Star Wars so I was coming back to Sydney for the summer the American summer and um we had bumped into each other and she was like oh I'll be in Sydney too and I pretended I didn't know it was because she was coming to film the second Star Wars at Fox Studios <laughs> but she very kindly invited me to come to the set and that's where I stuffed things up because I um did not recognize the director of the film George Lucas um <laughs> and asked him at the craft table what do you do on set <laughs> and um just felt so ashamed after that that oh, I kind of charming, just though. no no he stalked off and I mean you, already you feel very weird in those sets and it was just very hard trying to be friends with a famous person because you is don't is that how you, you stuffed oh, up a friendship you, that's not a big really stuff know. up I thought that you'd gossiped about her or something no no nothing like that but it was more just all of the things that you would ask any person that you're getting to know I never knew I could never actually be myself with her because I never knew what I was allowed to ask and so I just actually always felt very uncomfortable and yeah and the the other interesting thread throughout your book is self-help <laughs> and you obviously have read self-help literature what what drew you to that and what drew you to putting that in this book well when I realized I was going to write the novel and it was about these people turning 40 and then I started to think about what, you know, what is a midlife crisis and am I going through one right now? And then I started to go to the literature and try and understand what is the um, kind of texture of a female midlife crisis, but also what does it feel like intellectually? So not just like all the stuff we usually hear of hormonal stuff and like bad choices and men buying Porsches and having affairs, but there's something else happening that's really interesting in this time of life, I think, for women, where it's a kind of coming into your own. 
life of the mind if you've been lucky enough to develop one. And I just couldn't find anything in the literature about that, about what does an intellectual midlife opportunity feel like, not just a crisis. Um, and so, you know, I was reading pretty widely, so, you know, Jung and Kant and, and then up to um, Brene Brown, um, who's wonderful and I love her writing, but even she was not quite looking at the female experience in a way that um, was helpful. Um, so, yeah, I just started making stuff up, really, and um, gave the one of the main characters in the book as the professor of hedonics, which is the science of happiness. And that was just, for me, uh, a way to, you know, speak about some of this stuff and metabolise some of that research, but also have Eloise be experiencing midlife as a time of um, growth, not just crisis. And I think the research... We were talking earlier about um, that Emily and I both draw on research um, in our fiction. And for me, I actually just had a question I wanted to ask you. For me, I'm always worried that it can weigh down the fiction. You know, it's such a balancing act because you've got to do that reading and kind of take little baths in a few pots of knowledge. But then you have to let it breathe on the page and take it to a different place. And I wondered if you, like, what your strategies are for making that shift. Yeah, because it's definitely a thing. And I think we've all read work and maybe sometimes our own reading back over it. And it's like, you can see that they've done research. Like, you yeah, can see that yeah. they're pretty proud of what they've learned. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's easy to do. It is. <laughs> um, for me, like, particularly with this book, because I did so much research, but, you know, that thing of always coming back to character. And when you're writing from deep point of view of a character, of always thinking, would this person actually be thinking in these terms? Yeah. Like with Eloise, she is a researcher. So it's completely, like you've got a really good way of getting some of that stuff across because it is how she thinks and what she does. Yeah. But if you were to put those same words in the mouth of one of the other characters, it would sound really like you were shoving research in there. Yeah. Because true. it's not true to that character's experience. So, you know, with the, with the hoarding research, like Nick doesn't see herself that way. She doesn't think of herself in that way. So I couldn't actually use anything that I learned, especially in terms of the academic um, or medical research in, in her point of view sections, even though yeah. she's the one they apply to, because it's just not part of her way of seeing the world or thinking about herself or anyone else. Um, and Lena too, I mean, she, she gets a bit of literature on hoarding at one point from a social worker to help her aunt and she chucks it in the bin because she thinks like she knows that. she's 20 and she thinks she knows how she's going to solve the problem. Um, and so she's not engaging with that either. So there's, you know, there's a little bit in there with a, with a social worker and with the third point of view character, Will, who does a tiniest little bit of lazy Google research. Mm. Um, <laughs> But in terms of having the, the words of that research, how it's written or academic papers or anything like that, it just would absolutely stick out as false if any of that was in the novel in terms of the words spoken. So to me, that research was really in the um, psychological realism and acuity of the characters, of how mm -hmm. they act, particularly around Nick, to make sure there was nothing in her behaviour that was jarring or untrue. Um, and and to keep doing passes through that with that to make sure, again, I wasn't making her a puppet to show off certain tendencies or something like that, to keep coming back to character and how she thinks about herself, not how other people would diagnose her or label her or anything like that, but really what's her experience of living as herself as this person and and 
you know, it's it, it comes back to doing multiple drafts as well, as mm. with so many things. But I think that research of making sure that it's so, you know, just deeply embedded in who these characters are and how they live rather than something that is being put over the top to explain because that's not what fiction does best, I think. Best is showing actually living people what it's like to be them. And if that is um, fortified with research, all the better. But it, it can't, to me, it can't look like the characters are thinking of themselves in the way that a researcher would think of them or a psychologist would think of them, unless they're a psychologist or a researcher. Yeah. It's always handy to have one of those in that's, your novel. That's an excellent tactic. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, how do you make sure you're, you're – because you write a lot of non-fiction as well and journalism yeah. – and then you slip into the, you know, novel fiction is a very, very different voice. So how do you make sure your research doesn't weigh down your novel writing? Yeah, I'm still working on that. Um, I do love being able to move between nonfiction and fiction. Um, it's a bit like that fellow field theory mm. of um, it's a way of tricking yourself into just doing the work and... Um, I find just when I'm getting to the limit of nonfiction and being held accountable is such a different level of accountability for me in terms of writing, mm. you know, journalism or essays. And I get to a point where I reach peak fact. And right at that point, if I'm lucky, I can, you know, steal a bit of time to work on fiction and feel so free and happy mm. and get to process that factual stuff in a way that just is loose and mm. feels much more playful and mm. I think the playfulness for me is, is is key to that and then when that's starting to get a bit like what am I doing who am I um, you know move back to the non-fiction and kind of grasp onto the you know looking out into the world again but I find it usually I have to actually put the research aside so it's almost like I can't even have access to it on the computer when I'm writing so yes, you can't so be tempted. Sort of internalized it. Yes. So you have that understanding, but you're mm. not, you know, sort of the way that in nonfiction you might deliberately reference it and where it comes from. It's like the opposite. You want to make it a bit vague in background. Yes. Yeah. Like you've kneaded it into the dose. You don't yeah, even you don't even yeah. know it's you know there anymore. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. Great. Do we have our first question? Thank you. I heard Ishiguro last night, as many of us might have, and. There's a template that he offered, which is daunting but profound, amongst many things. What he said was, when he's coming to edit his works, he edits out that which he believes people, which is not, I guess, profound, that's my word. What do you take away from my writing that you will remember? And it's probably just a sentence or two sentences or a thought. So I'm asking both of you, what do you think people, like, well, take your last novels, what will people take away that will stay with them? I remember that book because... That's a great question. Yeah, lovely question. It's a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's a beautiful question, actually. Um, I think for me, it's that more and more I feel that, you know, in fiction, we are all rehearsing for real life. Mm. It's like an emotional rehearsal for real life. Um, and it continues to astound me that as humans, we 
have no real way of knowing what is going on in anybody else's mind. And yet we still manage to come together and try so hard to communicate between one another. Um, there's something heartbreaking about that. And um, for me, that's what fiction is, is, um, is a way to really experience theory of mind, which is the closest form of kind of intersubjective communication that we possibly have. It's the most profound tool we have at our um, fingertips to get into each other's experience, which is actually completely closed off to us. Mm. And I value it in my life and always have and value it more and more as I get older because it lets me take a break from my own voice. I mean, there's very few things that give you a break from the voice in your own head, but reading other people's fiction is one of them. Um, and I hope that in this novel, I've maybe given people who are in the same life phase or around it um, just a few more creative ideas of how to think through their own lives and, and dilemmas and maybe just be a little bit kinder to themselves because, you know, life is hard no matter what the external stuff is, it's hard for every single human. Um, and I think fiction helps. Mm. Um, that's a beautiful answer. <laughs> it's lovely. Um, I, I think with this book in particular, and this is sort of jumping off thematically in the same way, um, is to do with paying attention. And so from the sort of material level of objects, because Nick is someone who really values and pays attention to how something was made, whose hands it's passed through, what this object must mean. Um, and I, I do hope that readers will come away and pay a bit more attention instead of chucking things aside all the time. Um, but also then on the human level of also paying more attention, you know, the, the characters I've written are people who don't necessarily talk about their feelings and it's, it's not in their sort of uh, cultural or family history experience to have therapy, to process things. They just get on with things. Um, and that means even amongst themselves, sometimes they don't notice how badly someone's hurting until it's really disaster level. And so I think that thing, you know, whether it's with objects or with each other, of just paying that extra bit of attention and just really seeing what's gone into someone, what else might be going on. It's that empathy, that mm. thing of really feeling what it is to be someone else um, that is, is so hard to do in daily life because it's just one thing after another. But sometimes it is especially the people closest to us that we take for granted and think they're fine or whatever and, and we're just not, not seeing that stuff underneath. And that's really, to me, what this book is about more than anything is even sometimes when people... It's not people being bad to each other. It's people who really love each other but just, in a sense, become invisible, become like clutter in the space and not see that deeper damage. I think there's also, uh, to that point of paying attention... Um, the form of a novel is this immersive form, right? Mm. And it's a kind of paying attention that we are losing in daily life because of the constant destructions of, you know, the technologies that we are now living amongst and, um, and modern life. And so I also find myself valuing more and more f uh, the long-form mm. fiction, like mm. novels, uh, kind of almost preserving. It's like salvaging a way of immersing oneself and a deep thinking, a deep paying attention, mm. both as the writer but as the reader, that I suspect perhaps will actually be lost maybe in 
a couple of generations. And so I feel like we have to protect it, you know, mm. as a, as a mm. thing that our minds can do and that we keep choosing to do. Another, another question? Just a question for Sarah Dwan, if I may. Um, one of the, the scenes from your book that really stuck with me was one right towards the end where the families are in the train station about to go home and the mothers with their children looks up and sees another classmate with her, you know, sleeping child or busy child and they're kind of reflecting on the transition back into their actual lives away from all the emotions of the weekend. I was just interested, because we talked about a lot of the other themes today, but the... Um, your characterisation of what it means to be a parent and um, how you try to reconcile your idea of who you are and your reality of your life once you put your children in the centre of it. What was it that you were interested in getting out of that exploration in this book? Thanks, a lovely question too. Um, that was one of the anxieties, I think, you know, when I was saying I hadn't ever wanted to write about, um, I don't tend to write about my own life or experience and... Um, I was very worried. You know, parenthood is one of those things when it happens to a writer, you uh, feel like, well, when it happens to anybody, you feel like you're the most special human in the world. But then it's hard to make sense of the fact that it's also the most unoriginal thing in the world, you know. Um, <laughs> and so as a writer, I was very careful. I never actually wanted to write about motherhood because um, I was worried I'd fall into that trap. But once I gave myself that permission... I found I had nine years' worth of <laughs> thoughts um, <laughs> to put in there. And um, I, I don't really know what I was trying to achieve other than catharsis, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but I did want to um, hopefully be a bit funny about it. I mean, a bit of humour, a bit of the absurdities of it. Um, and just to see people kind of really doing their best, you know, like all of those characters... This was not a book of satire, you know. Um, I really wanted to be kind to the characters and every parent in that book is doing their best, even when they're failing. Um, and just sort of that's been my experience of watching, you know, the people around me um, parent. There's something very moving about the failures as much as the kind of successes of, of parenting and how, you know, I think it's, one of the characters says in the book that we're so anxious about modern parenting because we have no idea what we are preparing our children for anymore. It used to be very clear to parents, like, you know, you are preparing a child to take their place in a traditional kind of role. And suddenly we don't know what we're preparing them for. So all the things that are very easy to make fun of, you know, the helicopter parenting and the stuffing children with skill sets, like, you know, oboe playing and, you know, programming and all of that. I did not want to skewer that. Um, I think it's actually a very interesting response to the um, uncertainty that we all live under now as parents. And I wanted to come at that compassionately. Oh, mate, as the mother of a toddler, some of it was a bit too real. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, we only have time for one more question. I'm so sorry. But Hi. Yes. Um, I just, obviously, both your books have been written pre-COVID, and Emily's, yours as well, was captured just with a bushfire. So mm. actually, bang, before. Um, having a father who is a hoarder and a mother-in-law who is a hoarder. Um, I found that during COVID, their world was more shut down. They didn't have that escapism. 
do you think that your novel past COVID, if you'd written it after COVID, your interpretation um, would be slightly different? Um, probably, yeah. I think almost anything that, that we write, COVID has changed perspective on so many things. And I think, you know, like I said, every experience reporting is, is quite different. But um, you, you probably know that one of the things that can stop it becoming into really physically dangerous territory is often the presence of other people. So when you have other people around in the home, whether they live there or they're visiting, that can put constraints on it that stop it getting into that really dangerous territory. So obviously any situation where there's people there all the time or more often or no one can escape, the you know teenage kid can't escape or someone else in the house can't escape, that, that is going to add pressure to that situation and change it. Um, and then, you know, the, the flip side of the hoarding thing is that many people in COVID did a big minimalist condo thing too, chucking stuff out. And I suddenly was noticing all this media around, basically, you're a terrible person living in chaos if you don't have a completely empty place with three books on the shelf, <laughs> which made me get really ornery about how important things can be to people feeling at home. So there's sort of like across the spectrum, a lot of stuff that came up during that. And that's without even talking about the hoarding headlines, which were all about toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, um, everyone, for coming, joining us this morning. And join me in thanking Proven and Emily. Thank you, Bridie. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.